Chapter 47 As we make our way down the freeway, it starts to get dark. I don't mean New York dark, where there's a streetlight at every corner, I mean an almost tangible, blanketing darkness. Other than a minivan full of kids and their exhausted teachers, we were the only ones on the road. It might as well have been 4 a.m. and not 4 p.m. for all I know. There are lights along the roads, but as I stare out the window, I can't see anything beyond an impenetrable line of trees. There isn't actually a forest there, you know, Velma says sadly, it all got developed into agricultural lands, but to keep folks from complaining about the deforestation they left a small line of trees along the road to trick people into thinking there's a forest. That sucks, I reply, I really liked the forests. What's that smell? It's kind of sweet, like pancakes, maybe? I know, right? I suppose it's better this way, though, Velma noted out loud, kids used to get lost in there all the time. Maybe there's an IHOP nearby? Ooh, we should probably stop by, we didn't exactly eat lunch, just snacks and light alcohol. Shaggy and Fred got lost constantly, I say sarcastically, reaching into my backpack in a futile attempt to find snacks. Ha! Huh. Yeah. Something catches my eye in the headlights, but it's gone before my brain has a chance to identify it. Didn't they break up, though? I ask, I could have sworn they did. Kind of. They were pretty much on and off for the entirety of high school, but they broke up during senior year, Velma replies, they refused to talk to each other, and by proxy, me too. I'm sorry. There's a slight pause before she turns to me and flashes me a smile, don't be, it wasn't your fault. You just found some more popular friends, I can't blame you Dash. As the streetlight passes overhead, I realize exactly the thing in the headlights was smoke. Velma, look, we have to pull over Dash. Shitty, fucking, I'm not going to die today, Velma's hands grip the steering wheel as she swears through gritted teeth, navigating through her panic. She pulls into the hard shoulder as quickly as she can, she turns on her sidelights and her hazard lights grabs her bag and scrambles out of the car. I do the same, glancing around to see if I can see any other cars approaching. As she, presumably, calls AA, I take a few cautious steps away from the car. Frankly, I don't drive. It's impossible to do so in New York, so I have no knowledge of car repair, and by the look on Velma's face, neither does she. Of my very limited knowledge, I know that car plus smoke equals a dramatic explosion, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Hi. Velma says into her phone, trying her best to keep her voice level, my car I'm driving home and my car, it started billowing smoke. I approach her, and she puts the phone on speakerphone so I can hear the person on the other end of the line too, right? Okay, well, where are you?
Are you and the car safely out of the way of traffic? Velma tells the person on the phone all of the usual information, our location, what's wrong with the car, whether or not the engine could still run, that kind of thing. It sounds like you guys might have a coolant leak, it's nothing to worry about, but I'll send someone out, just in case, to fix it. Thank you. Velma is almost crying from relief. Do y'all have some warm clothes? I'm going to need at least one of you to keep watch out for the repair team headed your way. Yes, we do, we'll be okay, I reassure the person on the other line, as well as Velma. The person does what I assume is the usual wrap-up procedure of a call, telling us the estimated time of arrival, 20 to 25 minutes, reminding us to keep our hazard lights on, stay clear of oncoming traffic, that kind of thing. After one final goodbye, they hang up. Exhausted, Velma sits down with her back to the car. Taking her prerogative, I sat down next to her. Thanks, Velma says, you know, for noticing the smoke and being here for me. No problem. She takes my hand into hers, intertwining her fingers between mine, and lets her head fall on my shoulder. It's nice to just take a deep breath after that, frankly traumatic, experience. It's cold enough for me to see Velma's and my breath in the air, and I'm reminded of an old children's book. I can't remember what it's called, but I had bought it for one of my co-worker's children. It had a line, something like it's dragon season to describe this exact phenomenon, and for some reason, it had stuck with me ever since. Can I tell you something? Velma's voice trembles. Sure. I hesitantly replied. Her tone implies that whatever she is going to ask is a fairly heavy. Topic. As much as I love Alexi, don't get me wrong, she's adorable and so sweet and kind, but... She hangs back, as though she's still debating it in her head. Every time I see her, I want to cry. Oh. Yeah. She's not exactly hesitating, so much as weighing each word before she says them, she reminds me so much of her. She doesn't need to elaborate for me to immediately know who she's talking about. Thank goodness she wasn't driving as we were having this conversation. Her eyes are starting to welling with tears. Thank God, I utter, placing a hand on my chest as I exhale, I thought I was the only one that saw it. I know, right? Velma replies, her tone returning to a slightly more light-hearted one out of relief, I don't know where she picked these little phrases from, but they're all things you know who used to say. What does your mom think of Alexi? I ask smiling. Does she also see the resemblance in personality? They never met, Velma says, giving me a bit of a confused look, anyway dash. Velma stands up, extending her arm out to me, shall we do a little stargazing to pass the time? 
Sure. Tuesday mornings were not a particularly busy time for the front desk, so Daphne took the task of distracting the receptionists while I flicked through the guest book. So Deborah Dash, Daphne started, inspecting her nails as she talked. Diane, the receptionist talking to her corrected, my name is Diane. The guest book was a hefty hardback book the size of the old Bible in the library with old and yellowed pages. As usual, it sat on the receptionist's counter. Out of curiosity, I glanced at the first page to see when the first entry had been inscribed. Yeah, that, so, Daphne replies dismissively before changing her voice into her gossipy voice, oh, my god. Is that a new ring I see on your finger there? The earliest entry, as far as I could tell anyway as some of the first pages had been torn out, had been from before the First World War, someone by the name of Mrs. Bertha Moore who had come to see the headmaster about her son's shenanigans. Diane blushed, averting her eyes away from Daphne, well. She glanced at her co-worker, a tall, thin man with a pair of round, thick glasses and a mop of curly brown hair. He smiled at her lovingly, before realizing, startled, that Daphne was also looking at him. Oh! Peter exclaimed, yes, I asked Diane to marry me last week. With a quick jerk of my head, I brought my attention back to the matter at hand, finding out the name of the woman who was talking to Schmidt. The wedding is next March, Diane gleaned, grasping Peter by the arm and leaning in closer to him, I cannot wait. There were three entries for today, Mary Powell, Elliot Murray, and Elizabeth Edwards. None of them had signed out yet, so it was safe to assume that they had not left just yet. Mary Powell had written their name in the most swirly, over the top that took up three lines of space instead of the usual one, and I could just barely read it. Thankfully, the other two were written in a much more reasonable block lettering for Elliot and semi-cursive for Elizabeth. As well as noting down their names, I scratched my brain attempting to remember a course I had taken on analyzing handwriting. Powell seemed to be a very extroverted and bold person with a large personality, potentially one with an inflated ego and attention-seeking tendencies. Murray, on the other hand, seemed to be more introverted, as the letters were fairly small. They didn't seem to be hiding anything, but the careful attention played to the letters could have been indicating that Murray went out of their way to do so. Edwards also seemed to be rather introverted, but unlike Murray, didn't seem to pay particularly close attention to their letters as the title, the dot on the I, was off-center and the last few letters were smudged, as though they were in a rush. Hey, what are you doing, kiddo? Peter asked, sucking me out of my train of thought, are you supposed to be doing that? Um... I started to panic a little, I had been so lost in my thoughts it was jarring to have to come up with an excuse on the spot, I was looking for my mum's name.
trying my best to hide it from view, I slid my notebook into my backpack. Oh, Peter asked, picking up a calendar from his desk, does she have an appointment? No. I started, my mind pulling up a blank. Daphne, bless her, tried her best to cover for me, Velma was feeling ill, so her mom is going to pick her up. Yep. I chirped in, she wasn't in the guest book, though, so I'll go wait for her outside. Kiddo, if you're not feeling well you should wait in here, Peter said in a concerned voice, pulling out a blanket from under the counter, it's freezing out there. No, no, it's okay, I can see her pulling up now, I pretended to peer through the window, I should go. Come on, I'll see you off, Daphne said, offering her hand to me. Waving to the receptionists, the two of us stepped outside, the cold air buffeting us as we did so. For some reason, I was expecting something to be out here, but of course there wasn't. Daphne leads us around the corner to a bench so the receptionists can't see us. I sat down, placing my backpack down at my feet. So, what now? Daphne asked, what did you find out? When I reached for my notebook, I realized that Daphne was still holding my hand. Blushing, she let go. She played nervously with her hands, eyes averted, sorry. Don't be, I paused, unsure if I should continue as though nothing happened, but I can't think of what else to do, anyway. Three people signed in today, Mary Powell, Elliot Murray, and Elizabeth Edwards. Well, we can rule out Elliot Murray, Daphne said, leaning over to look at my notebook, we're looking for a woman, after all. Right, yes, I crossed the name off of my list, okay, so Elizabeth Edwards didn't write down a reason for visit Dash. Suspicious, Daphne comments. Yeah, but Mary Powell did, she's here for a job interview, I continued, I got interrupted so I couldn't find out what position it was for. I could ask the receptionists at some point, Daphne offered, Deborah and I are great friends. I couldn't tell if she's joking or not. Thanks. I glanced around, do you want to go back to your car or the receptionists? We could just say I was wrong or something. Something over Daphne's shoulder caught my eye. Emerging from the line of trees leading to the special ed building was a figure holding a squirming rabbit. Schmidt. He was starting to make his way towards us, or rather the front desk, so we needed to hide. Ideally quickly. Come on, we need to hide, I insisted grasping Daphne's hand once again. I led the two of us behind one of the teacher's cars, ducking behind it so that we were concealed from view. Through the car window, we watched as Schmidt entered the building, handed the rabbit to the receptionists, talked to them for a moment, then left. He wandered away from the building, leaving the premises entirely, presumably heading home. 
So, Daphne glanced back at the building, back to the receptionists? Yeah. You can ask about Powell, and the guests have to go back through the front desk to sign out, so I can watch out for them to pass by. I told her. Cool, let's go. Chapter 48 We clamber onto the roof of the car so we can be sure to be out of the traffic and lie down on the cold metal. Velma keeps a blanket in the car, so she pulled that out for us to lie under as we watched the night sky above us. Do you still know all the constellations? I ask her, thinking back to all the nights we had spent like this in our youth. Most of them, yeah, she tears her eyes away from the glimmering lights to glance at me. Do you remember the ones I taught you? Some. Like Cassiopeia and her husband, what's his face? Very eloquent of you. Velma jokes, flicking my icy nose. It's not like it's my job or anything. I reply sarcastically, adding more sincerely, Tell me the story again, I've kind of forgotten it. This wasn't exactly true, the memories of our nights spent together are treasured ones, but I had forgotten the details. And I kind of wanted to just stare at the sky, listening to Velma's voice. Okay, so, Cassiopeia was this queen dash, Velma starts. Girl power, I commented, raising my fist to the sky. Ha, yeah, Velma chuckles, basically, she boasted that she was prettier than the Nereids, which made Poseidon dash. What, sorry? I know I'm interrupting a lot, but I can't help it. Nereids. They're sea nymphs, Velma tells me, and Poseidon was the god of the sea. Oh. Okay, cool, I stare up at the sky again, letting Velma's words paint a narrative in the dark stage above. Velma tells me about how Poseidon got pissed off at Cassiopeia's boast after the nymphs complained to him, and as he was married to one of these nymphs he decided to set one of his sea monsters, Cetus, to ravage Cassiopeia's kingdom. When Cassiopeia consulted an oracle for help, she was told to sacrifice her daughter, Princess Andromeda, to the monster. They did so, rather reluctantly, and tied to a rock out at sea. Well, that sucks, I commented, your parents are just leaving you to die. I know, right? Velma jokes, Greek gods are shitty parents all around. Anyway, Perseus, passing by on Pegasus, the flying horse, noticed her plight and rescued her. Oh, thank goodness, a white knight riding to the rescue, I say sarcastically, let me guess, they get married and it's happily ever after? Velma says more than enough with her silence, one of her former suitors, Phineas, tried to stop the wedding, claiming to be the only one to have the right to marry her. Of course he does. I'm pretty sure Perseus isn't white, though. Velma notes out loud, the Disney version is, but in traditional mythology, he would have been Greek. True, 
but that doesn't negate the point that a man came along to fix all of her problems instead of allowing Andromeda to rescue herself, I point out, sorry, you can continue. The gods were pleased, apparently, so Poseidon placed Cassiopeia and Cepheus, her husband, in the sky, Velma continues, as punishment for her vanity, Cassiopeia was bound to a chair and condemned to spend half of the year upside down. Is that why her constellation looks like a W? I ask. Yeah. That one word drifts out into the void, the memory of it echoing in my mind. We don't talk after that, simply letting the sort of silence of the night fill in the space left by our lack of conversation. It wasn't awkward, though. Neither of us felt the need to code over the absence with chatter, so we just lied there. From under the blanket, I notice Velma fidgeting. A moment later, I feel her hands slip into mine. My hands are cold, she smiles. Chuckling, I put one arm around her shoulders, come here. Velma cuddles into my side like a baby koala snuggling their mother, and I let my head rest against the top of hers. I want to stay here forever. I don't want the car repair people to get here. I just want to stare at the sky and snuggle with Velma forever. Who gives a damn about work anyway? Capitalism is an exploitative system for the proletariat and if my choice were between going back to work and staying here with Velma at this moment, of course, I'd pick. Would I, though? Let's be real, you can't live off of love. I've seen the average footfall Velma's bakery gets, it barely manages to pay for its expenses, I doubt it could support an extra person, even if I did help out full-time. You could work remotely, a small voice said in my head, or you could find another job here. I feel Velma idly playing with my feet under the blanket, gently kicking them, nudging them a little, that sort of thing. What's that about? I ask her. I don't know, I just felt like it, Velma glances up at me mischievously, do you remember our midnight picnics? Fuck yeah, I do, I don't know why we're whispering, but it feels right, looking back, I'm surprised we didn't get hurt or killed at all. We were just really lucky, I suppose, Velma says simply. Or maybe the universe was apologizing for everyone else's behavior. There's a twang of bitterness in my voice that I hadn't intended to be there, one that I hadn't noticed until the words were out of my mouth. H.M., maybe, Velma shifts so she can look at me directly, do you want to go stargazing again? The loft space in my apartment has a sort of skylight, so we don't have to worry about getting cold as much. Does that mean we don't get to cuddle? I joke, because if so, of course not. Velma pauses, pulls herself away from me, and sits up, why do you do that? Do what? I prop myself up on my elbows to keep watching her. 
You make a big show and dance of being like, we're not dating, it's not the responsible thing to do, she puts on a silly voice in her impersonation of me, but then you say things like the cuddling thing, and it's just like what do you want, Daphne? Her voice is desperate, it's begging for an answer I don't have. I dash, I reach out my hand to touch her shoulder, but she brushes me off. Are we dating? Are we not? Velma continues, tears starting to streak down her face, please don't just break my heart again. She hadn't cried, not properly anyway, when we were talking about Alexi, but now she's not holding back in the slightest. The last thing she wants is for me to comfort her, right? I never find out the answer, anyway as I see the lights of the repair service quickly approaching us. Feel really sorry for him, Diane said to her fiancé as we entered, he's so alone after, you know. Mm, Peter replied, picking up Stonecrop and pulling the piece of paper out of the rabbit's mouth, I'm going to go return this little fellow to the hutches, will you be all right here? Yeah, yeah, I'll be fine, you worry too much Peter, Diane laughed, and anyway, you girls can protect me while you're here, can't you? Daphne nodded enthusiastically, dropping down into a karate pose, I'll protect your honor with my life, Diane. Oh, goodness, Diane exclaimed, clutching a hand to her chest, see, Peter? I'll be fine. Peter smiled, turned on his heel, and walked further into the school. Now, I'm assuming your mother wasn't there? Diane said, turning to me, if you want, I can ring her again? No, no, it's all right, I replied, panicking slightly, I'm starting to feel a little better anyway, so can I just sit down for a bit until the bell goes? What do you want me to do if your mother gets here, then? Diane asked, a suspicious look falling across her face. I don't think she's coming, Daphne tells her in a sympathetic voice, you see, Diane, her mother was called an hour ago, they only live a twenty-minute walk away from here and her workplace is even closer, so if she was coming to pick her up, she should have gotten here a while ago. Velma was just hoping her mother would show up anyway. Oh, dearie, Diane stepped around from the desk to hug me, it's okay, my mother was the same, I understand. If you ever need to talk to anyone, I'm right here, okay? Nodding, I stepped a little away from her, can I wait until the bell goes? Just in case? I wasn't very good at acting, and I definitely laid it on too thick, but I think Diane bought it anyway. Maybe Diane saw something in me that reminded her of a younger version of herself? I don't know. Of course, darling, Diane went back around to her desk, and she and Daphne started talking in hushed voices. I hope to God Daphne is asking about Mary Powell and not spreading more salacious rumors about me, even if it was to bail me out of trouble. Why am I the one doing all the acting anyway? Daphne is the drama-focused one out of the two of us.
Glancing around the front desk, I noticed a few flyers for this semester's school play, Romeo and Juliet. Both Daphne and Fred had auditioned for a part in the play, Daphne because she wanted to, and Fred simply because Daphne was doing it. Shaggy, Scooby, and I had waited for them on the green bit outside the music classrooms as had become our custom. It was pretty boring to sit there and wait for our person to appear. There wasn't much time left either, as the bell was about to go in about ten minutes, and I wasn't going to explain to Mum about why I had to cut class to sit in the reception. Mystery Incorporated was already on thin ice as Shaggy had been banned from taking part, even though he continued to do so against his mother's wishes, so I wasn't going to put another maternal ban on top of that. Thankfully, I could hear someone approaching, my ears pricking up and my posture fixed to get a better look at the person who was approaching. A small, rather plump woman stepped through the door with the head of drama, mid-conversation with him, lovely. I hope to be hearing from you very soon. Well, I'd love for you to be teaching in one of our classrooms very soon. I'll put in a good word for you, Mr. Cowan replied, shaking her hand. Don't forget to sign out of the guestbook as you leave, Miss Powell. Of course, Miss Powell replies, hiking up the sleeves of her blue velvet jumper and signing her name with a flourish. She capped the pen with her pinkies out, as though she was gently pressing two china cups together. She straightened her patchwork vest, put on her coat, waved goodbye to Mr. Cowan and left. I hope to see you again soon. Mr. Cowan called out to her as she disappeared. Miss Powell clearly wasn't the person we were looking for. For starters, she was significantly shorter than the woman we had seen, and she was presumably accompanied everywhere she went while in the school so there was no way she could have gone to the special ed building without someone noticing. It also would be odd to pretend to go to a job interview if what you wanted to do was trespass. Which means the next person to leave would likely be the person we were looking for, the elusive Elizabeth Edwards who didn't write a purpose for visit and smudged her signature due to her rush. As soon as Miss Powell was out of eyesight, Mr. Cowan deflated like a weak old helium balloon, Diane, please say that was the last interviewee? I don't think I can survive another one. Diane paused before answering, there's one last one waiting in one of the meeting rooms for you. Mr. Cowan slumped onto the desk his arms draped dramatically over the edge of the desk as his forehead rested on the surface of the desk. Here, Diane held out a small piece of card, it's in meeting room three. Groaning, Mr. Cowan took the card, why did I ever agree to do this? I think you'll like this one, Diane said, not glancing up from the sheets of paper in front of her, he said his name was Gregory, and if I wasn't engaged myself, I'd snap myself right Gregory's here? Mr. Cowan bolted up, Diane, darling, why didn't you tell me? He rushed out of the room without giving Diane the chance to answer. Laughing to herself, 
Diane staples some pieces of paper together. Diane, what was all that about? Daphne asked, who's Gregory? I couldn't possibly tell you, Diane replied, hiding a small smile, Mr. Cowan and his best friend, Gregory, live together if you catch my drift. But Mr. Cowan is, like, 40, Daphne remarks, why does he need a roommate? Exactly, Diane said simply, leaving Daphne looking bewildered. The person succeeding Miss Powell is another woman, a tall thin woman flanked by Daniel Olson and the headteacher. I'm so sorry, Mr. Eastwood, I promise this won't happen again, the woman says, isn't that right, Daniel? Huffily, Daniel turned away from the woman. Upon closer inspection, I don't think this woman is Daniel's mother. She was acting like she was, yet Daniel's reaction, and the fact that he's white when this woman was not. I don't know much about Daniel, but I do know that he isn't adopted or from a broken family, so who is this woman? Liza, that isn't part of your job, don't worry about that, the headteacher sighed, Daniel, I'll be home later this afternoon and we'll talk about this with your mother properly then, can you please just stay out of trouble until then? Daniel huffed but didn't protest. Right then, the headteacher straightened back up to talk to the woman, I'm, thank you for doing this, Liza. Just my job, sir, the woman said, somewhat bitterly, goodbye, sir. I'll pay you overtime, the headteacher called after the pair of them, sighed, and resigned himself back to the school. It wasn't her. She wasn't the one we were looking for. Although the headteacher hadn't called her by the name she had signed in with, I assumed from the smudged ink on her right cuff that this woman was our elusive Elizabeth Edwards. There was no way she could have gone to the special ed building. She'd signed in a mere five minutes before we had checked the guest book and had left ten minutes after that. If she had gone to pick up Daniel from the headteacher's office, it would have been impossible for her to walk the five-minute trip it takes to get to the special ed building and back to make it here, not accounting for Mr. Eastwood's notoriously long lectures about misbehavior. So, who is our mysterious person? Where did they go? Chapter 49 Hi, the mechanic steps out of the van, I heard you guys have a coolant leak? Velma had already clambered off the car after the lights first appeared, so I was left sitting on the car's roof on my own, a blanket draped over my legs. I hop down as the mechanic approaches. I wave hello to the woman but otherwise make no effort to talk to her. Yeah, we were driving home when Daphne here noticed white smoke coming from the car. Velma tells the mechanic as they walk around to the front of the car, it smelled like pancakes. Mmm, sounds around right for a coolant leak, the mechanic says, taking a flashlight out of her toolkit and looking around under the car, has this happened before? I don't know, Velma says, this was my mum's old car, so it hasn't been driven in. 
probably years? The mechanic nods knowingly, continuing to look around the car. My mind starts to wander into a daydream, and I don't bother even trying to rein it back in. Glancing around, I notice that the highway has turned into luscious, glowing green grass. The sky above is miraculously shifting into a cloud-speckled bright blue sky. It's a meadow, the meadow, the one I had seen when Rex the dog had approached us, so I stepped towards it. I haven't been able to get the thought of that incident out of my mind. Where did that rock come from? Things shouldn't materialize out of a hallucination, a daydream, a haze, whatever that was, and it was happening all over again. I know I'm not just remembering the incident, this feels more fleshed out. I practically feel the grass cushioning my steps. My arms start to feel really, really light, as though gravity wasn't affecting them anymore. My posture straightens, and the blanket slips from around my shoulders as my body starts to lift off the ground gently. You know those videos of astronauts in zero-g, where they weren't flying, but rather floating? Or that scene in Into the Spider-Verse when Miles isn't falling through the frame, but rather rising? It's like that, but a whole lot less awesome. And a hell of a lot scarier. Velma. I call out to her, I'm at least a head above her and the mechanic now, Velma, look up, please. My voice sounds weird and warped, as though I'm not the one saying them, or as if I'm trying to scream underwater. Either they can't hear me, or they're not paying attention, but neither of them looks up from the car's engine. In a desperate attempt to stay on the ground, I reach out for the street lamp as it passes by, but no matter how hard I clung to it, the upward force still manages to yank me higher and higher into the sky. The last thing I see before the clouds obscure my vision is the blanket, crumpled and lying on the ground. Deciding that I have no other chance, I resign myself to the invisible for pulling me upwards and stop struggling against it. It's not cold up here. It was a bit damp as I passed through the clouds, but not in an unpleasant way. It's a lot easier to breathe up here, too. I thought oxygen got sparse at a certain point in the stratosphere, but as I rise higher and higher, the air only seems to become more saturated with oxygen. I hear from behind me a loud rumbling of something approaching, when I turn around I see an airplane approaching with an alarming speed. It's a white plane with a blue underbelly and a red wavy stripe on the sides. AMI Jet Charters is blazoned across the aircraft body, as though a child had scrawled their name on their favorite toy. Somehow, I dodge out of its way just in time, scowling as the toothpaste-reminiscent plane disappears from view. Just in case any more planes were planning on trying to kill me, I glanced around me. In the clouds, I see creatures. They ranged in size, some were huge goliath creatures that carried large buckets of cloud matter, and some were tiny spider-size, 
and they were chipping away at the clouds. They weren't particularly scary, they waved back in a friendly manner when I waved at them, and they seemed to pose no threat to me. Eventually, after a few moments of floating, I burst through the top layer of clouds like a missile destined for the moon, only to emerge into Studio Ghibli-esque land on top of the clouds. The unseen force that had been pulling me upwards eases up, allowing me to gently fall onto the crayon green grass on top of this cloudland. This is a completely different world from the one I had just ascended from. Birds that looked like stars fly up from the waist-high grass, temporarily filling the air around me with the sound of flapping. Butterflies with wings that look like they've been colored in by an enthusiastic but overexcited child flutter around me. The sound of laughter seems to emanate from a spot a little ahead of me, so I pick myself up and start walking towards it. This land, curious as it is, is delightful. Even though it's winter back down in California, up here, it's the height of summer. Beautiful creatures straight from the textbooks in the library wander about peacefully, even though many of them are the predators and prey of each other and a number of them are from opposite ends of the planet. I don't have to walk far until the dirt and grass beneath my feet turn into a neat, winding brick path. It leads me through the meadow to a small cottage on the other end of the cloud. Sprawling gardens with rabbits and chickens and cats and dogs wandering about surround the cottage. The cottage is this adorable, two-story brick structure that wouldn't be out of place in a Beatrice Potter book. The cottage seems impossibly small, though, as though it wasn't built with an adult in mind, and I have to stoop to look into one of the windows. Inside, I see a dining room, also unusually small, with a table set for a meal. Through an archway, I can see into part of the kitchen. Someone eerily familiar exits the kitchen with a steaming pot of something that smells absolutely divine and places it on the table. Something gives way under my foot, causing my forehead to knock into the glass, startling the person inside. As they look up at me, I feel the invisible force that had brought me up here start to pull on me again. You're not supposed to be here yet screams the person inside the cottage, the wind drowning out the rest of their words as I'm yeeted back to the ground. So, what are we doing? Daphne dumped her files onto the table, going over the facts again. Pretty much, I sighed. We'd hit a dead end. It had been a week since we saw Schmidt go into the special ed building, and we had more questions than answers. Who was the woman Schmidt was talking to? Why was Schmidt even in the special ed building? What were the screams about? What do you want me to do? Shaggy asked, I haven't really got that much to go through. I don't know, um, make a list dash I said, making up the task on the spot dash, of everyone involved in this mystery. Don't leave anyone out. Regardless of how trivial they seem, they might be important. In any order? 
Scooby asked. Let's go with alphabetical. I suggested with a shrug. All right, I'm heading out for snacks, then, Fred said, pulling his wallet out of his bag. Do you guys need anything? I'll have Dunkaroos and a Yoo-Hoo, Shaggy raised his hand. What are you, Ten? Fred mocked playfully. Shaggy stuck his tongue out at him in reply. Thankfully, the two had stopped arguing in those two weeks. It was a bit awkward, as though they were trying a little too hard to be friends, but as long as there wasn't a shouting match every time they talked, Daphne and I had no complaints. Fruit snacks, Scooby added, and a high C. Right, okay, no Scooby snacks? Fred asked. No, I stocked a bunch in the cupboard, we have enough for the rest of the century, I replied, pulling my water bottle out of my backpack, could you refill this for me? And I'll have a cosmic brownie, please. Can I just get some Sunny D? Daphne said, glancing up from her textbook, I'm not that hungry. Are you sure? I asked her, you didn't eat much at lunch either. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, Daphne said dismissively. She stood up, I'm going to go through the newspaper articles again, maybe we missed something. Cool. Oh, and could you ask Mrs. Robertson about Schmidt? I instructed her, she might know something, and you're the best at getting information out of people. Sure, see you later, she waved and left the room, mumbling something under her breath. I heard her heels clicking against the floorboards of the corridor as she headed towards the library, the regular sound fading out of earshot. Do you think Daphne's mad at me? I asked Shaggy as soon as the sound of her heels disappeared, chin in my hand, she keeps doing that, the talking to herself thing. Shaggy and Scooby shared a glance as if they knew something I didn't. Look, Velma, Shaggy started, I'm really not the person to ask about this. Freddy and Daphne are a lot closer than she and I are. And anyways, if anyone would know, it'd be you. Anyway. No S, I corrected him, the last thing I want to do is talk to Fred, he and I don't exactly get along. H.M., I couldn't tell, Shaggy said sarcastically, why do you ask, though? The mumbling thing could just be her reminding herself of something. I know but it feels like she's been avoiding me. I confided in the two of them, promise you won't tell anyone, but she switched seats with a couple of people, so we don't sit next to each other in any of our classes anymore. I didn't know she had other friends, Shaggy commented, last time I heard, she wasn't exactly popular. I know, right? I added, and there's this thing, I don't think she'd been eating properly, or at least not in school. Maybe she just eats a lot at home? Shaggy suggested. We do. Scooby piped up. Yeah, I'm not too worried about your appetites, 
you two are going to eat us out of a club, I replied, scratching behind Scooby's ears, but I hope she's all right. Me too, Shaggy said sympathetically, maybe you should talk to Freddy about this? Maybe, I thought to myself for a moment, why do you call him Freddy, anyway? No one else does. What are you guys dating? I had meant it jokingly, but from Shaggy's lipless smile, averted eyes, and rising eyebrows, that wasn't how he took it. Oh my god, you are. Please don't tell anyone, he begged, his voice desperate, I haven't even told my parents yet, and I don't dash. No, no, it's chill, I can keep a secret, I held out my little finger, Pinky promise. He paused before linking his little finger with mine, Pinky promise. Do you want to talk about it? I asked, you know, all the arguing and such? Not really. We're not exactly together at the minute. Ah, I said thoughtfully. You don't think it's, like, gross? Shaggy asked, his voice trembling slightly, or weird. You're one of my best friends, I reassured him, imagining you having sex is weird and gross, never mind who it's with. Ha, yeah. I glanced down at the list he was working on when something caught my eye. There were two entries in the M list, Elliot Murray, the third person who had checked in that day, and Eric Murray, the kid who killed himself. There's no way. I said, mostly to myself, as I picked up the list and stood up. What? Scooby asked, glancing up at me. Elliot, Elliot can be a girl's a woman's name. I burst out, and Schmidt's wife changed her and her son's surname to her maiden name. Yeah, and? Shaggy prompted. I need to go, I said, grabbing my notebook and pencil case. Wait, go where? Shaggy asked, what about going over the facts again? I think I've solved the mystery, but I need to double-check, I told him as I rushed down the hall, and tell Fred that if he eats my cosmic brownie while I'm gone, I'll kill him.